All right, we are in a, continuing our series, The God Beyond Religion. We're looking at the early church in Acts, and we're looking at these stories about how the early church went beyond the walls of religion, the boundaries of religion, to include all people. And we're looking today at one of the most famous conversion stories within the Bible, the story about how somebody uh, became a follower of Jesus. Did you all ever have in, any point in your life a conversion moment where you uh, accepted Jesus into your heart or you said a, a prayer? Um, a friend of mine grew up in the Baptist world. His family every year would celebrate spiritual birthdays along with your birthday. So the day that you were born uh, from your mother's womb and then the day that you were born uh, as a born-again Christian and they would go out and they would have a party and they'd go to a restaurant and... Maybe they'd play pin the tail on the devil for their spiritual birthday party. But it was a big deal. And for a lot of people in the Christian world, that, that moment of conversion when you said the prayer is like the most important part of your life. And I, I get that to some extent, especially if it's a moment where you realize that you have just been lost and, and how you've been living your life and struggling. And then you find that the way of Jesus, the way of love, is a better way to live. And that's a big eye-opening moment and an important realization. But the National Association of Evangelicals found that uh, 63% of people who identify as Christian accepted Jesus between the ages of 4 and 14. And only 3% accepted Jesus after the age of 30. So 97% of people accepted Jesus at a young age. That just goes to show how many people accept Jesus just because they were born into that world, into Christianity. I think I was maybe around the four or five mark, and I don't remember the hour I first believed any more than the hour I came out of my mom's stomach. I don't have any recollection of the hour that I said the prayer I have no idea when it happened. I was so young. But I do remember when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, we were on our way home from Tyler, Texas, where my mom's family lived, driving eight hours to Springfield, Missouri, and, and I was laying in the back of a Dodge minivan. And uh, I started to think, what if I didn't say the prayer right? And if I didn't say it right, if something were to happen, if, if I were to get into a car wreck on my way home, I would be sent to hell for all of eternity, and I would never see my family again. And that terrified me. And I just started weeping in the back seat of that Dodge minivan. And my dad heard me. He said, what's wrong? And I told him. And he comforted me, and he assured me that... Um, you know, every, that I was saved, but he, he, he walked me through the sinner's prayer one more time, just so I felt secure and assured that I'd said the prayer and I'm going to heaven. The idea that once you say the prayer, the conversion, you say the prayer and then you're saved. Growing up Southern Baptist, that means you were once saved, always saved. Growing up Assemblies of God, you could say the prayer, but then you could lose your salvation. Then you'd have to say the prayer again. Then you could lose your salvation. Then you have to do the altar call again. Get, get, to get saved over and over and over. David Platt's a Southern Baptist preacher from Alabama. He said, I'm convinced that many people in our churches are simply missing the life of Christ. And a lot of it has to do with what we've sold them as the gospel. 
i.e. pray this prayer, accept Jesus into your heart, invite Christ into your life, should it not concern us that there is no such superstitious prayer in the New Testament? Should it not concern us that the Bible never uses the phrase, accept Jesus into your heart or invite Christ into your life? Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Maybe it's not so much about a momentary prayer. Maybe it's more about trying to live your life every day like Jesus. It's more about having a moment in the day where I get ticked off at the driver in front of me and I say something very unloving and I realize I should be having this attitude. I should be going the direction, the attitude, the words, the behavior of love. That's a conversion moment. I wake up to the, I need to follow Jesus in this moment and I have to do that every day. Maybe it's not a one-time prayer. That whole sinner's prayer thing, uh, most historians believe originated in the early 20th century. It's a very, very modern idea within the history of Christianity. The conversion story that we see in Acts was from Saul. He became a Christian because he saw this massive bright light like staring at the sun. And we see the story in Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, that's what they called followers of Jesus, they belonged to the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He basically went to the high priest of the church and said, I want uh, search warrants to go into homes and find any Christians and arrest them. And now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I see a bright light. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Get up and enter the city and you'll be told what you're to do. And the men traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice of Jesus, but they saw no one. Staring at lights isn't good for you. Staring at the sun is not good for you. Um, we have medical reports of people high on LSD who looked up at the sun and they were so mesmerized that they couldn't look away. It blinded them. And two years ago, I remember when the eclipse happened, Everyone sold out of the protective glasses. Don't look at the eclipse. The sun is so powerful, it'll burn your eyes. That's kind of what happened to Paul. It's a flash of light like the sun, and he was blind for three days. Light has a way of, um, of waking us up. When Kylie and I moved into our apartment, the first thing we did was get... Um, a hanger so that we could hang blinds in our bedroom so we could hide the light in the morning because we are not morning people. We do not want the light to wake us up. We want to sleep. Light has a way of waking us up. But light can be painful when we're sleeping and the sun comes in. The stories in the Bible refer to, to God as light. Jesus says that he is the light of the world. Light can wake us up. Light 
uh, when it's dark, can kind of show us the way and show us where we are and show us everything around us. Saul was forced to wake up with this bright light, wake up to the truth that he was not living the right way, that there is another way that he should be living, the way of Jesus, the way of love. In Ephesians 5, which is attributed to being written by Paul, it says, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love. Saying, you are loved, so walk in the way of love. You were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul realized that he was living a life that was not the way of love. The light woke him up to see another path. Sometimes I am living a life that is um, not out of love, but a life out of fear, a life out of insecurity, a life out of loneliness, a life out of irritability, a life born out of pain and hurt, suffering, tragedy. When you're living in that world, it's almost like you're living in death. It's not a life at all. It's not like you're living at all. You need to wake up. When we see the light, when we see the way of Jesus, when we see the person of Jesus, when we see how he lived, how he treated people, we see another way that leads to life, a meaningful, fulfilling life, life to the fullest. That's what Paul is saying. The way of Jesus is the way of love. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Pray for those who hurt you. So after this, Saul goes to a guy in Damascus named Ananias. And God appears to Ananias and says, this guy is Saul, he's coming, I want you to heal him and take him in, take care of him. And Ananias says, Master, you cannot be serious. Everybody's talking about this man and the terrible things he's been doing, his reign of terror against your people in Jerusalem. Remember, Saul was the guy who had the coats of all of the Jewish people who were stoning Stephen, a follower of Jesus. They were stoning him to death, throwing rocks at his head. Paul was the guy who was holding their coats for them, cheering them on. And he had a reputation for attacking, for persecuting, for um, arresting uh, the followers of Christ. God, what the hell are you talking about? I'm not going to let this guy into my home and take care of him. He has a reputation for attacking people like me. So Ananias listened to God, and he brought Saul in. He healed him. Saul was baptized. Baptized means um, you have a new identity. To be baptized means um, it's kind of a cleansing, purification thing. To be baptized as a Christian means the temple, the religious establishment, doesn't say I'm clean and worthy. 
Jesus says I'm clean and worthy. So it's kind of a ritual purification thing that ties to the purification that you would do in the temple. When you're baptized, it meant that you now identify as a follower of Christ, living the way of Jesus. So Paul, Saul, was baptized and identified now as not one who uh, sought the death of Jesus' followers. He became a follower of Jesus. It's kind of confusing that we, we talk about Saul and Paul as the same person. Uh, Saul didn't change his name to Paul. Saul was his Hebrew Jewish name. Paul was his Greek name. He grew up in a Greek city, Tarsus. So when he was talking to Hebrew Jewish people, they called him Saul. And when he was talking to non-Jewish people, they knew him as Paul. He was a different person depending on who, different name depending on who he was talking to. So he is baptized. Next thing he does is he goes into the Jewish synagogues and he starts teaching about Jesus. He says, this guy truly is the son of God. Son of God was a political term. The Caesar of Rome was known as the son of God. He meant to say that Caesar is not God's representative on earth. Jesus is. We do not determine how to live our lives by what Caesar says or any other ruler in this world. Jesus is the one who tells us how to arrange our lives, how to live our lives. He's the one that's in charge. And of course, when he walked in and said that, all the Jewish people were so upset and angry and confused because he had been saying the opposite for so long. And now he walks in and he's just like, I made a mistake. I was wrong the whole time. And so the Jewish people said they were astonished. Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Oops, jumped off two head. They're angry. They're confused. They're so angry that they hash out a plan to assassinate Paul. And so the followers of Jesus find this hole in the wall, and they put Paul in a basket, and they lower him down at night so he can escape the city. And he escapes, and he goes on to spread uh, the good news of Jesus to all the towns. And he's one of the main reasons that Christianity spread. He went from destroying these church homes where there was community and taking care of each other and love. He scattered them apart. And now he is forming them and he's building these communities of love where people take care of each other and follow the way of Jesus. His past as a persecutor of Christians, an attacker of Christians, it was shameful and it was offensive to followers of Jesus. But then, after he saw the light, I saw the light, they welcomed him in as part of the family, as one to help them spread the good news of Jesus. Have you ever felt defined by something in your past? Something that maybe you have done? A hurt that you have caused? A relationship that was broken? Or have you ever felt defined by your past because of something that's been done to you? A hurt, a trauma, a tragedy, an abuse? It's so easy to take our past, the things that have happened to us, the things that we've done, and own them in such a way we cannot separate ourselves from them. 
you are not defined by your past. Your past is a part of your story. Those are two very different things. You're not defined by what you've done or what's been done to you, but your past is a very important part of your story. The message, the story of Paul is one that says God can take all of the parts of our past that are painful and broken and twisted and traumatic, and God just doesn't make it disappear like it never happened. He takes those things and he molds it and he forms it into something that can breathe life and goodness and beauty. The way that he took Paul's heart, his attitude of uh, torture and abuse and discrimination and prejudice against the Christians, and God took all of that and changed it around so that he's now preaching love, your enemy. Take care of those who hurt you. Paul says in his letters to uh, pour kindness on those who hurt you. Completely changed. But Paul's past, his past of persecuting Christians, and his past as a high up person in the Jewish world is what gave him credibility to go talk to people who were Jewish. His past growing up in a Greek city and persecuting Christians is what gave him credibility in talking to non-Christians about Jesus. It was his past story that God was able to use to create something new and good and healthy. It's like that verse in Romans 8 that says, God can take all things, every little piece, good and bad, and he can form it to work together for good. does not mean that God causes all things to happen. But he can take all things and create something good and beautiful out of it. As a Jewish leader, Paul was the one who got the scriptures right. He was high up in the Jewish world. He had a high reputation. He was the one who followed all of the religious rules. He, if anyone was going to experience the kingdom of heaven, it was going to be Paul. Jesus showed up and said, nope, you got it all wrong. It's not enough. Knowing the scriptures, following all of the religious laws, it's not enough. You're not going to make it. The light, Jesus showed him a different way. I love this quote from Father Richard Rohr, Franciscan. Christianity is saying, Christianity as it should be, is saying that we come to God not by doing it right, which teaches you very little, but invariably by doing it wrong and responding to our failures and suffering with openness and awareness. It's not about doing it right. It's not about following the rules. In Japan, there is a tradition called, I am not going to pronounce this right at all, Kintsukuroi. Does anyone know how to pronounce that? It literally means golden repair. And it's a pottery term. So when they are making pottery and the pot breaks, as it inevitably will, it's such a fickle, um, fickle thing. Rather than throwing out and starting over, they repair it by filling the cracks with gold. 
And instead of hiding the imperfections, the brokenness, it highlights the brokenness and the imperfections because they believe that it makes it even more beautiful. I love that. Your flaws, your loneliness, your pain, your past are not things to throw away in disguise and hide. They have the potential, those parts of your story have the potential to recreate you as what uh, famous psychiatrist Carl Jung calls a wounded healer. Your own hurt and pain that allows you to heal others. I saw a statistic that said something around, and those of you who are therapists can correct me, 80 to 90% of counselors and therapists became counselors or therapists because of the hurt and trauma that they experienced. And that empowered them to say, I want to make sure no one else is to go through this. I want to make sure other people know how to get through this. Your story, the hard, painful, traumatic parts of your story are not to be hidden and disguised and thrown out, but they are to be recreated to do something good, to bring healing to people. So the story of Saul reminds us that no one is too far from God, that no amount of hurt, no amount of tragedy, of pain, of suffering that has been done to you can overcome the love of God. God's love is so much stronger than any hurt or pain or tragedy or trauma that you could experience. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was around the table having dinner with his closest friends and followers. If anyone in history knows trauma and tragedy and pain, it's Jesus Christ. He was betrayed by his best friends, his family, um, physically, emotionally tortured traumatized, um, and murdered. (laughs) If anyone knows pain, it was Jesus. And Jesus, we recognize, is the representation of God on earth. Christ is God on earth. God experienced suffering and pain. God entered into our suffering and pain with us. And three days later, the love of God overcame that suffering and pain and he was raised to life. And when he was raised to life, he still had the scars in his hands and feet. The scars didn't go away. They didn't disappear. They were part of his story. That there is a power in this universe that is stronger than the pain and the hurt and the suffering. And when Jesus told his followers that you are the light of the world... Not just I am the light of the world, but you are the light of the world. You are to go out into the world and spread that news. There is hope. There is a power that is greater than hate and fear and prejudice and discrimination. And you all are responsible for spreading that news, for spreading that love. And so when Jesus was 
with his followers. He was preparing them for the suffering that was about to happen and preparing them for their call, their mission to uh, spread that love through the world, the good news of Christ. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. I am entering into suffering with you. And he took the gluten-free, dairy-free mochi. (laughs) And he broke it and said, this is my body. And he took the cup of wine, pitcher of wine, and he poured it out. He said, this is my love poured out for you. Somehow, mysteriously, within suffering, there is love, there is beauty, there is meaning. Because the suffering itself does not have the last word. The suffering God will take and lead to healing, to beauty, to resurrection. Suffering is not something to be avoided. For some reason, it is part of life but it's not the only part and it's not the end. There's more. So every week, we take the bread and the wine as a reminder of the life of Jesus, that he is hope in this world, that love is hope in this world. We take that and we eat bread that's been dipped in the wine or juice. We eat it as a symbol God, may we remember every moment of the day that we are loved, that you love us, that as we are made in your image, in the image of love, that is who we are, that is what defines us, that is where our identity comes from, not in what we do not in our job, not in what we say, not in what people say about us. Our identity is found in you, in love. And as a result of that, may every day we choose to live out of love, the way of love. We thank you for the person of Jesus and his example, his life, his way. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in peace. We'll see you next time.